You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. What a a joy it is to worship our holy God this morning. Invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. We have been spending just about the majority of this year working through this book of the Bible together. Today we find ourselves in Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Let me read God's word for us. Therefore, do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus announced those words in the crowded courts of the temple at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast was one of the major week-long celebrations for the nation of Israel as they remembered how God sustained the nation in the wilderness. They hung out in tents, and as they wandered through the wilderness, led by night by a pillar of fire by the Lord. And on the final night of the Feast of Tabernacles, they had what was called the Illumination of Temple Ceremony. Israel would put four giant candelabras as high as the temple walls in the inner outer courts of the temple. And each candelabra was so large, it held 65 liters of oil. And so the roaring flames would all be ignited and the whole city of Jerusalem would gather in that outer court of the temple and that temple would radiate with with the flickering flames, the beams of light coming from the candelabra. Not only the temple, but all of Jerusalem and Israel would dance and they would worship and they would sing praises unto the Lord, remembering the God who led them as that great pillar of fire. And when Jesus declared, he is the light of the world, he does so the day after that ceremony. The next day, Jesus proclaimed at the temple, probably with the the odor of the oil still smelt as it burned all night, and he comes to the temple and he stands before all gathered and he says, I am the light of the world. And the glory, I am, Jesus says, the glorious God who led you across the darkness and into the desert sands before him. 
And Jesus says of Israel, if you would follow me, just as you follow that pillar of fire, you would have the light of life. No wonder they killed him. What audacity to stand before his people and to claim that he is the light of the world. But that's exactly who Jesus is. John's gospel tells us, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So now that Jesus has come, he died, he rose again, and he ascended to his Father in heaven. And so the light of Christ illuminates the world today from the candelabra of the church. Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, the church ought to shine with the glory and holiness of Christ to a world that is stumbling in the darkness. In Ephesians 5, 7 through 14, the passage before us this morning, Paul is continuing his call for the Ephesian church to live holy lives in response to their new identity as God's children. And so Paul latches on to the frequently used image all throughout the scriptures of light and darkness to describe the distinction that ought to be evident between God's people and the world. The light of the world has made us children of light. Thus, we are commanded to walk as children of light in a world that is filled with darkness. So as we study the text this morning, we'll do so in in two parts. First, we will see how in Christ we have exited the darkness by the supernatural working of God in our salvation. And then secondly, we will understand that our role as children of light is to expose the darkness, exit the darkness, expose the darkness around us. By the contrasting holiness of our lives, we are to proclaim the triumphant resurrection of Christ to the world in hope that God will enlighten those who are in darkness even now, awakening them to the glories of Christ. So that's our plan this morning, exiting the darkness, exposing the darkness. Let's begin first with exiting the darkness. Beginning with Ephesians chapter 4, we have seen that Paul is taking the gospel and he is applying this gospel to the Christian life. That it is our new identity as God's people that changes everything about how we live. And so Paul has been giving commands to the Ephesian church and to us as Christians about how we are to properly conduct ourselves as proper for God's children. And so in Ephesians 5.3, if you were here last week, we looked at three categories of sin, which seem to be in a special temptation for the Ephesian church, and they're similar temptations to the ones we face today. These are sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And these, like all sins, warrant the wrath of God. And Paul gives the warning to the church in that way. That even though the Ephesian church is no longer children of wrath, they've been saved by grace through faith, uh, they've been redeemed by Jesus, but Paul warns them that those who practice in these Gentile way of life, of sexual immorality and greed, that they have no share in the kingdom of God. That the warning of wrath that Paul gives them is not not to frighten the church, but to urge the church to put on the holiness for which they've been called to put on. 
So therefore, the church should not partner, Paul says, shouldn't partner with those who would deceive the church with empty words, saying that such sins are permissible for God's people. Paul says, don't have anything to do with those folks. We should not join ourselves, Paul says, with those who claim Christ and with those who participate and celebrate in the very sins that bring the wrath of God upon humanity. So the reason for this becomes apparent in verse 8. Why? We live distinct lives because we have a new identity in Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 8. Paul writes, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice how Paul points and highlights, puts the spotlight, if you will, on our new identity. Because the gospel is not just about having a new code of conduct or a new sort of behaviors. There's a fundamental change to our very nature that Paul is emphasizing here. Notice what he says. He doesn't say that you were in darkness, but you were darkness. He doesn't say you must now be in the light, but he says now in the gospel because of Jesus, you are light. So by the gospel, we have this fundamental change to our nature. We were dead, now we are made alive in Christ. We were dark, but now we are light. Or a new identity all comes because Christians are found in the Lord, right? We are united to Jesus by faith. And it's because of our union with him that transforms our very lives. Christianity is not some sort of cultural garb that you put on in the South, nor is it some sort of ethical system that we are to achieve and perform. No, the gospel changes our very nature. It's a supernatural working of God's grace, changing us from darkness to light. And through faith, we are saved out of our sin by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are permanently united to him. And so notice the connection that Paul is making here, right? Just as Jesus is the light of the world, now we are light in the Lord. Through our union with Jesus, both are true. Christ can say he is the light of the world, and he can say we are the light of the world. Both are true. Why? Because we are in Jesus. So our transformation from darkness to light and our discussion of union with him, these are not just philosophical musings for the seminary. No, this is, this is practical stuff because the gospel manifests itself through the fruit of those who are transformed by the gospel. So the gospel shows itself in the way we conduct our lives. And look at Paul again in verse eight, returning to one of his favorite words that we've seen over and over again throughout Ephesians, walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Notice how Paul so masterfully and beautifully interweaves our new identity as God's people with our behavior. You are light, therefore walk as children of light. Paul's point is clear. There's a certain logical follow-up to the gospel that if we are light, then light by its nature will shine. We will separate ourselves from the darkness in which we live. And so if we are made light by God's grace, then we better be living as light day by day as we go through our lives. If God has made us light in his son, then we should illuminate the darkened world with our lives through holiness. Jesus is the son. S-O-N, but I'm, I'm referring here to S-U-N, the, the big ball of fire in the sky, right? Jesus is the sun. He is radiant with 
his holy glory. Jesus is beautiful. He is heat. He is the source of any divine light that is shown upon this darkened world. The coming of Christ in his first incarnation, when his first coming, it was a new dawn. His holy light illuminated our darkened world. But of course, Jesus, the bridegroom, has returned to heaven. Night has come again, and we wait together for the return of the bridegroom, for the rising of the sun upon a new day and a new age. But church, the Lord has not left this world without a witness to the light. If Christ is the sun, the church is the moon. In our darkened age, we are to reflect the light of Christ as a mirror. And this is important because as a church and as God's people, we don't generate any light within ourselves. All we do is shine the light of Christ to a generation that's currently fumbling in the darkness of nights. And like the phases of the moon, the church waxes and wanes throughout the seasons and throughout the generations. Sometimes the church will shine with brilliant clarity and other times the church will decline in the shadow. But the light of the world has not left the world without an evidence to his light. The church, even now in our present generation, in this darkened night, hangs in the night sky, reflecting the light of the source, Jesus himself. And this is important because the beacon of hope for the world is always Jesus. It's not the church. But as the moon hangs as a sign, it points to the light of the coming day. So does the church point to the coming of Christ. And though the pale moon is a lesser light than the brilliant sun, the moon nevertheless illuminates truly and it illuminates powerfully in the darkened sky until the dawn of day. You see, the church's holiness is a vital part, is a key part of our mission until Jesus returns. It's a key part of our evangelism. We bear witness to the light by our holy lives as we shine for Christ's glory. So Paul describes just what this sort of walking in the light looks like. If we're going to do this together as a church, what should our lives look like each day? And he gives us some insight. Look at verse 9. He says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good and right and true. In some ways, these three virtues that Paul lists here are a sort of short form of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. So let's talk about each one briefly. Goodness describes sort of the opposite of sexual immorality and greed. Believers in Christ are to deny themselves. We should seek to do good for others, particularly for their spiritual benefit. So we ought to be exhibiting goodness, ought to be exhibiting righteousness, meaning that we ought to have by our conduct a sort of integrity that conforms to the pattern revealed in God's word. And of course, truth. Aletheia, it's it's a word that's shown up many different times throughout Ephesians. The truth is in Jesus, Paul says, Ephesians 4.21. We are saved when we heard the word of truth, Ephesians 1.13. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, as we build up one another. So Paul will tell us later when he talks about putting on the Christian armor that Christians are to fasten on the belt of truth. So goodness, righteousness, truth. This is the the, the sort of qualities, the sort of virtues that define the people of God who walk as children of the light. Do such fruit define your life? 
as you live, not just on Sundays, but every day during the week. You see, as God's people, we must walk. We must walk as children of the light. We, we cannot. We cannot mirror the lives of unbelievers, particularly when it comes to their lust for money and sex. But we must reflect the holiness of God by our conduct. And yet, as we look at our world today, it's very complex, isn't it? How, how do we discern, well, how do I walk as a child of light in a world so morally murky in so many ways? How do I live a holy life in my job? How do I, how do I live a holy life among my family members who are caught up in unrepentant sin and don't know the Lord? How, how do I live a holy life among my neighbors who don't know the Lord? How do I live a holy life as I post to social media? How do we live a holy life and be distinct as light in a world that openly celebrates what God calls sin? So the complexities of this fallen world mean that we need discernment. <laughs> we need God's wisdom to help us know how do we live wisely here? And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We've got to try to discern what does gospel faithfulness look like in our generation? How do we live holy? How do we live as light to this generation in our country in this year? So to attain that wisdom, how do we get it? But well, we have to bask in the light of Jesus every day. If we want to know how to live as light, we need to bask in the source of the light. Thankfully, God has not left us to our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, our own insight, our own knowledge to try to discern how to please him. God has given his word and he's given his spirit to the church. He's not left us alone to figure it out. Early in Ephesians 4, 22 through 23, Paul tells us that we are to put off our old self. Remember that? And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So with God's word and with God's spirit, our thinking is ongoingly transformed in the Christian life so that we can discern how do we rightly please God with my particular life. And the Bible is the instruction for how we discern wisdom for our day and age. So if we don't know the scriptures, or if we just cast them aside altogether, you're not going to know how to please God with your life. We must devote ourselves to the study of scripture and if we are to live holy lives of wisdom, we need God's word. But Christian ethics is not just about right behavior, but right behavior as a means of worship, worshiping the God who saved us. Look at what Paul says. We should desire to please the Lord with our lives. That's the aim, right? Any decision we make, we should always ask this question, what does the Bible say that I should do? And then a good follow-up question, will God be pleased with the decision I've made, with how I've acted. We pursue holiness gladly, not as some sort of begrudging duty, but because we love the Lord and he saved us and we want to worship him and give him glory with our lives. Our, our desire as we conduct ourselves and make our decisions each day and interact with our neighbors, all of it should be, how can I please my God? So when I was a kid, we used to have these glow-in-the-dark stars that you would put on your ceiling. Some of you might have those in your room now, right? They're little white stars, right? Kind of plasticky. And so they're shapes of stars and moons, and you can put them on your ceiling, particularly when you're a kid. It's really cool. And during the day, you know, they're hardly noticeable. If you walked into a room, you probably wouldn't even notice they were there. But when you hopped into bed, when you turned off all the lights, you would see their 
glowing green hue that would begin to emerge in the, in the night. And of course, over the course of the night, if you happen to wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom or something like that, the, the, the vibrancy of those lights would begin to wane over the course of the evening. And pretty soon they would lose all their luster. But then you would get out of bed, sun would come up, new day dawns, you go about your day, you go back to bed at the end of the day, you turn off the lights, and those stars are shining yet again in brightness. And why is that? Well, in order for those stars to glow in the dark, they don't generate a light source. They get their light by basking in light. So without the energy of the light shining upon them, they cannot shine. And the same is true for the Christian. If we do not bask in the presence of Jesus, the light of the world each day, we will not walk as children of the light. The Christian must continually, daily be recharged by daily communion with God if we will please the Lord and the holiness of our lives. So let me ask you, how then is your daily time communing with the Lord? Are you just quickly getting through it to get it done, to get to your list? Or do you bask, soak up the light of his holiness with your Bible open and with your heart open in prayer? Is the Holy Spirit, Christian, renewing your mind day by day so that you can discern how do I please God with my life? Are you shining with distinct holiness every day you live or is your light going out? Is it waning? Is it being swallowed up and engulfed by the darkness around you? Christian, we have, by God's grace, exited the darkness. Christ has made us light. So therefore, let us walk as children of light. Living holy and distinct lives as an act of worship, longing to please the Lord. And even though we have exited out of our former life, guess what? We still live in a darkened world, don't we? So how then do we do this? How do we live wholly distinct lives in a world that is filled with darkness? And Paul helps gives us some insight. Secondly here, as he instructs us not to partake of the works of darkness, but to instead expose them. At least secondly, exposing the darkness. Verse 11 is an important verse. Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now notice, Paul forbids us from partaking in the unfruitful works. Paul isn't advocating here for Christian isolationism, where we seclude ourselves away from the world and from the people of darkness. We avoid the works of darkness, Paul says, not the people of darkness. Great commission people must be people who are light in a darkened world. So in 1 Corinthians 5, you might remember this, Paul is instructing the church on how to deal with a very strange and bizarre and kind of awkward case of church discipline. They need to remove a member from their fellowship who's engaged in unrepentant sexual sin. And Paul clarifies, as he's giving instructions on how to deal with this case, he, he clarifies that he's not advocating for the church to avoid sexually immoral people, only those who live immorally and call themselves Christian. And he goes on to explain, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So, so we live holy lives around 
unbelievers <laughs> every day as you go about your work, as you go about your week, as you go through your neighborhood. But Paul's point is that as we do, we do separate ourselves from their immoral behavior. We don't live like them, even as we live among them. But the light of holy living, Paul says, has this exposing effect. That the contrast between light and dark becomes so sharp that when the light begins to shine, that which was hidden in the darkness is revealed. And so Paul calls us to expose the unfruitful works for what they are. In many ways, Jesus is simply applying, I mean, Paul is simply applying exactly what Jesus taught. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Like cockroaches on the porch, the wicked scatter with the light. The light of holiness has this exposing effect upon human sinfulness. The church does this in part now as a lesser light as the pale moon, simply by being children of the light. But when Jesus returns, all will be revealed at the dawning of that day. Jesus said so himself in Luke 8, verse 18, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. All will be revealed. But the holy lives of God's people shine with the light of Jesus. And by our holy conduct, simply by being Christians, faithful, striving to honor the Lord, we will expose the wicked to the truth of the gospel. So if you live a life marked by holiness, this is going to happen whether you want it to or not. You will, just by being you as a Christian filled with the spirit of God, living in obedience, you will expose others to their sinfulness. Light by nature exposes. If you walk as a child of light, the, the children of darkness are going to gnash their teeth at you from time to time. So too does holiness by its nature expose sin and others. And by exposure, Paul, Paul isn't urging that we, we do so in some sort of pharisaical, judgmental sort of way, bolstering ourselves, feeling superior over them, over those who are entrapped in darkness. That's not what he's calling for. Instead, simply by being holy, by living Christian lives, we expose. But the aim is, is not to make people feel bad about themselves, but to rescue those who are trapped and sinking in the sinful cesspool of the darkness. And remember your own story. Isn't this exactly how all of us came to know Jesus, if you're a Christian? Right? That apart from Jesus, the initial reaction to God's holiness is one of repulsion. We're not drawn to God's holiness. We're, we're fearful of it. We want to run away and hide. The light of his glory stings us. And why is that? Because it brings about the painful knowledge of our sin. In darkness, we can cover ourselves in the ignorance of the delusions and lies that we tell ourselves, thinking that we're better people than we really are. And under the cover of darkness, we can operate in the flesh and in our desires in secret without our consciences being stirred or convicted when we come into the light. And so the light of holiness exposes us for who we really are. Depraved sinners without hope and without God in the world. And as Christians, reflecting the holiness of Christ by our lives we're going to have that same effect on others around us. Those in darkness will have a tendency to recoil in response to your holy living. Even if you kill every ounce of pride in your heart, 
(laughs) Even if you smother out any ounce of judgmentalism that might be in your speech or in your soul, even if you speak with perfect kindness, grace, and mercy, the wicked will still run from the light into the cover of darkness. They did it with Jesus, so will they do it with us? And if you live a holy life, you will have this tendency by, whether you want to or not, you will expose the unfruitful works of darkness of those around you. You can't help it. You are a child of light now. But as we see that the light of holiness reveals the truth to those who are in darkness, it is a painful thing to recognize your sinfulness, to be convicted of your shame and your guilt. But it's the first step necessary for true repentance, isn't it? It, It's a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing for God to confront a sinner with the truth about his depravity, about the truth about his or her nature. Because without knowledge of God and holiness, we cannot have true knowledge of ourselves. And it is only when we are burdened with the disjunction between God's holiness and our sinfulness that we can, in desperation, call out to Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember the Beatitudes? Jesus talks about this, the sort of posture of God's people who are citizens of his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, right? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who recognize I don't have it and I want it and I need it, for they shall be satisfied. You see, without the painful exposure of holiness that comes, we cannot sense our need. And if we can't sense our need, then we cannot find salvation in Christ. And so it is by our holy lives that we are to be beacons reflecting the holiness of God that we might help in love those who are in darkness come to an accurate knowledge of themselves so that they might see their need for a Savior and so that we might tell them of the Savior who has saved us. So part of the Christian responsibility is to do this work of exposing the work of darkness, to identify that which is wicked and evil. So this gets challenging. No matter your your political camp, no matter your institutional loyalties, no matter your closest relationships, Christians ought to expose sin wherever it is we find it. We don't stop exposing sin just because we find sin in our own tribe. We are to be impartial to the truth and apply it wherever we see it needs to be applied. Wicked deeds that flourish in the darkness, especially in Christian institutions, need the light of holiness to expose the wickedness and to flesh it out. But Christians today, as we've thought about engaging the culture, Christians today have preferred to expose sin through the megaphone of punditry rather than the quietness of personal piety. There's there's a place for publicly calling out the sins of our culture. Christians in every generation must speak with moral clarity to their generation. We should expose the darkness for what it is, whether it's the murder of the unborn babies, whether it's the dehumanizing of the immigrants, whether it's the mutilation of children as experiments in the sexual revolution, whether it's the oppressive greed that puts profits above people or whether it's every form of sexual immorality. We do expose it 
We rebuke it. We call it what it is. And in the crevices of society, there are such acts of depravity and evil that Paul says here in the text that it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But part of the Christian's responsibility is to expose the works of evil without being sullied by them, to speak the truth with love to their neighbor. And it's easy, I think, for Christians with with this sort of stand from a distance and let me say everything that's wrong with the world, this sort of antagonism, this mood, it's easy for this to become sectarian, to isolate ourselves away from the culture and to yell out our corrections from a distance. And that's the temperament of the fundamentalist, isn't it not? Toward the culture. And they stand secluded away and rebuke from a safe distance. But if the danger of Christian fundamentalism is this sort of grumpy shouting to the culture, the temptation of modern evangelicalism is one of compromise and thus a losing of our distinction and holiness. Since Carl F.H. Henry first gave his critique and correction to fundamentalism in the 1970s, he urged Christians to engage the culture as a means of transforming it. And since then, we evangelicals have attempted to do just that, to integrate ourselves with the world and to do so with great commission intentionality. In obedience to the Great Commission, we've sought to be salt and light in all sorts of spheres, right? In business, education, economics, politics, medicine, and so forth. And there's been great good done in that cause. And we have sought to go out and transform the culture with the gospel. And as we do, we try to straddle the tensions of the text here in Ephesians 5, right? We straddle this tension of having nothing to do with unfruitful works of darkness, but yet being immersed in them enough so that we can expose the unfruitful works of darkness around us and ultimately redeem them as we apply the gospel to them. But but as Christians attempt to infiltrate the culture to transform it, what we've seen happen over and over again is that we can become desensitized to the shameful things done in secret. That as we, in the name of the gospel, seek to engage the culture, it's quite easy for us to become enveloped by the darkness. We become salt that's lost its saltiness. We become lights that start to flicker out as the surrounding darkness grows thicker. So instead of transforming the culture for Christ, a lot of Christians can be transformed by the culture. Pastor Brian Chapel said it this way. He said, it is better to shine a light in a closet than to stumble around in the darkness so that you may know its dimensions. Many well-meaning Christians, I think, have triumphantly entered into the darkness as a way to measure its dimensions so we can figure out how to reach it best, only for them to be snuffed out and to join the darkness and to abandon Christ. I think the church today is grappling But how do we live a text like this one out in a post-Christian America? If you can't tell, I know I've struggled with how do we discern how to please the Lord in our generation? There are challenges. We need God's wisdom. How How do we live as holy gospel people in our culture when we're dealing with politics, when we're dealing with the economy, when we're just dealing with our country's ripping social cohesion? How do we respond? How do we interact? How do we speak to our neighbors? How do, what, what does faithfulness look like today? And so the sort of get off my lawn antagonism of fundamentalism is making a resurgence in a lot of Christian circles. And I don't think that's a helpful approach for Christian witness today. Engaging and transforming the culture, that's a great idea. But as we've seen, there's a temptation to it. There are countless examples of how it has led so many and many institutions to lead to biblical and moral compromise and the loss of holy distinction in the world. So what's the solution? 
Well, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I think what Paul advocates for here in our text is a pretty good way to go. The holiness of God's people living together in local covenant communities called churches, where we commit to living as distinct lights in our cities. We live among the darkness, all of us do, but yet we gather as children of the light. That's what we've done here, right? We've gathered together as a church, as a countercultural community defined by God's holiness and the redemption we've received in Christ. That the light of holiness must be lived out individually as you leave this place, but certainly corporately as we gather. There is a personal dimension to exposing sin, but there is a church-wide piety that we ought to orient and orbit our lives around. We used to sing the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And there is, implicit in that sweet little song, an individualism that is absolutely foreign to biblical Christianity. (laughs) Jesus doesn't tell us that each and every one of you, you're a little candle scattered around the, the darkened nation and good luck. No, he says, you are a city set on a hill, right? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Jesus says. And a city is not one light, but it is multiple lights gathered together to provide a larger light that perseveres and makes a greater illumination in the darkness. So while the aim to engage our culture is a good one, without healthy churches that provide biblical instruction and gospel community and church discipline, we can quickly give ourselves to compromise in the culture. Healthy local churches scattered across our land and across this world is perhaps the best way to reduce the risk of getting absorbed by the culture and the best way to shine as vibrant lights to the culture. I think that's Paul's point today. That all these discussions happening right now in the church about the best way, what's the best way to be a light to our dark culture, I think it kind of misses the simplicity of what Paul's advocating for here. It's rather simple. Live a simple, ordinary, faithful Christian life, right? Be, be faithful in your marriage. Honor God and your sexuality with a chaste life. Be a good steward in your finances. Speak graciously and kindly to your coworkers. Ordinary holiness is perhaps the best way to expose the fruitful deeds of darkness, fruitless deeds of darkness. So don't stress. Don't stress about what's the best strategy to engage the culture. What's the proper Twitter post I can put up that can really expose the words of darkness? Don't do that. Don't stress about the best strategy. Just commit individually to live a life that is marked by holiness in the gospel for the glory of God. And don't do so by yourself, but do it with God's people in the church. Don't stress about all that stuff. Walk as children of the light and add your light to the community of the local church and membership. And as we live in an increasingly countercultural sort of way in this darkening world, our whole lives are going to be shaped around the gospel. Our whole families are going to be shaped around the gospel. The church must live as a parallel society alongside the secular world, but different from the secular world, shaped by radically different worldview and assumptions. The, The Velvet Revolution against the communists in former Czechoslovakia was a non-violent political revolution. Václav Havel, a former president of the Czech Republic, 
wrote of life under communism as a Christian, or not as a Christian, but just life under communism, and the peaceful transition to power that happened. And his testimony, I think, would be good counsel for the church today. Here's what he said. We had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well, we could go out to the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. You see, as gospel people who live under the tyranny of secularism, I think we need to adopt a similar approach. As Christians in America, we must learn to live in a parallel society being formed by the church's worship and community. And as we live together and gather for worship and seek to be about the work of the gospel in our community, the gospel should continually be impressed upon our hearts. And as the gospel will spread, not only through our hearts, but it's going to spread through the grassroots of our communities, expanding and growing by the power of the Holy Spirit until one day society itself will be transformed by the light of the church's gospel. Paul describes this dual effect of this exposing in verse 13. Look at what he says. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. You see, our holy lives make visible what was hidden under the cover of darkness. But then Paul says that that which is brought into the light of holiness can also become light. That when holiness does expose sin, we've already talked sometimes, a lot of times, those who are exposed will flee and retreat to the darkness. But others, the revelation of the light, are transformed by the light and so become light. Isn't that our testimony as Christians? Right? We, we were in darkness. We were darkness. We were rebellious. And the light of God's holiness came upon us and he shone his light, exposed our sin and God convicted us of our sin and we didn't scurry away, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we fell on our knees and we cried out to God for forgiveness. And by God's grace, Christ heard our cry of faith and he saved us and he transformed us from the darkness of our former lives into his light. So don't be mistaken here. When we talk about exposing sin, it can sound judgmental and negative and perhaps mean, but the light that exposes has the potential for powerful evangelistic fruit. Because just as Jesus transformed our darkened hearts, so can he transform by his power the darkened hearts of others. Just as he did it for you, he can do it for your neighbors. He can do it for your family. He can do it for your coworkers. And it's by the testimony of our witness and the holiness of our lives that God saves sinners just like us. Verse 14 is most likely an early Christian Easter or baptismal hymn. We're not sure of its origins, but Paul refers to it here. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We were all asleep, weren't we? Asleep in the darkness. But just as Jesus rose from the grave, so does he awaken sinners unto salvation. The church lives a holy life for the purpose of evangelism. 
so that we can tell others about Christ. And that as sin is revealed, that sinners by God's power would be awakened to salvation in Jesus, that the light of his glory would illuminate this darkened world and their darkened hearts, and that they would repent and believe upon Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Friend, you may be tempted to gnash your teeth at me this morning or to run and hide away from this church and never come back because your sin has been exposed as we've worshiped our holy God this morning. But I pray, I pray that God gives you the grace to recognize that his spotlight of conviction that you feel now upon your heart is his mercy to you. The exposure is necessary for you to see the way to have fellowship with God. Christ has paid the penalty for sin. The light of the world has come into the darkness to deliver us out of the darkness. And the goal this morning of the preaching of God's word is not to shame you in your sin, but to redeem you out of it by the power of Christ. Awake this morning. Awake to the light of Christ. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Do not cower in the shame of darkness any longer, but come humbly and, and contritely and repentantly into the light of Christ. Look to him in faith. Jesus has paid for every sin. He has paid for every shame. He alone deals definitively with our guilt. So come to Jesus and rest in him. Turn from your sin. Come into the light. Put your faith in Christ. Awake, O oh sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are aware that apart from your light, we all would be lost in the darkness. Lord, we pray that as those who have become light, that we would walk as children of light by the power of the gospel. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to learn how do we live holy lives in this complex world that is so fallen and covered in darkness. Lord, help us to have the wisdom of how we are to not partake in the unfruitful works of darkness, but yet to expose them. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us grace to one another as we wrestle with what biblical faithfulness looks like in our generation. But Lord, we pray that above all, that as we live holy lives and as we share the gospel with our neighbor, that you would awaken sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored as we shine as lights for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.